Take your Bibles then, if you would, and head over to the book of Daniel. We've been in Daniel for um, a little while, since the beginning of the year, I guess. And now we want to head into Daniel chapter 7, and uh, verses 9 through 12. Like Daniel chapter 2, there is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees, and then Daniel prays and receives the interpretation of the vision, but before he goes into Nebuchadnezzar and reveals to him the interpretation, he also gives a prayer of thanksgiving. And so here in Daniel chapter 7, as we looked at last Sunday, it was a rather frightening vision. Uh, there's lots going on, different beasts. Some have uh, similarities to animals that we would recognize. But the fourth beast seems to be somewhat indescribable. Daniel has a hard time putting uh, any likenesses, metaphors, or similes to this beast. He's just terrifying. And we know that even after the interpretation is given to Daniel, at the end of this chapter, he's still very, very uh, rattled by this vision. It's, it seems to be ferocious, and perhaps the ferocity of human evil uh, and the depravity and degradation of human kingdoms. Things do not get better, they get worse. And Daniel just seems to be very, very put off by this. He's still uh, very um, unsettled. And yet, this is not a throwaway. This morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, and the next Sunday, Lord willing, just verses 13 and 14, because there's so much here. And the real point of this, as Pastor Luke pointed out last week, is not to try to figure out all the details. It's not to try to agonize over the four-headed leopard and the bear with the three ribs and what's going on there, which is oftentimes where our minds go. But the point is to see God and what he is up to in all of this. And repeatedly through Daniel 7 and through the rest of Daniel and the first six chapters that we've already been through, it is God and his sovereignty, his gracious, benevolent rule over all things that really is the focus. It's not on all the minutiae. As Pastor Luke pointed out and kind of teed this up, because there's a shift in the book of Daniel, as we noted, from chapter 6 to chapter 7. There's narrative, and now we're getting into visions. And, and these are prophetic in the sense that they foretell what is going to happen in the future. Now, I've had a bit of that with Daniel 2, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that he has of the statue. But the rest of Daniel really is this foretelling prophetic um, uh, narrative or prophetic literature. But the reality is it's also apocalyptic, as Pastor Luke pointed out. And the, the idea of the apocalyptic genre oftentimes is to evoke emotion. It, it uses weird, strange, oftentimes unrecognizable symbols, but it gives an emotional response or something that it invokes in us. And it certainly has that effect on Daniel. He, he sees the first three beasts, these uh, animalistic uh, re representations of, of humanity. It's not a good look, as Pastor Luke pointed out. When we see the glory of man, we see like the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. From our perspective, these are glorious, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and uh, buildings and, and monuments, and we think it's very grand. But when God sees it, it's, it's very depraved. It's very evil and malicious and malevolent. And that's certainly the picture that we get. But the first three beasts... Daniel said it's like this, like that. Again, it's, it's not clear necessarily, but he's trying to uh, recount what he saw. But it's that fourth beast that's just very, very unsettling and upsetting for Daniel. And that's the point of apocalyptic literature. And as we move into Revelation uh, later on this year, starting in September, Lord willing, we're going to be seeing some of that in John's visions. 
they are prophetic, but there's also elements that are apocalyptic. They're, they're very strange and weird and frightening and scary, and that's kind of the point. So that leads us then to where we're at this morning, and I think this is very, very important. So follow along, if you would, uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is the word of the Lord. This is such a fascinating passage that we have before us this morning because it is the clearest picture of God and in his presence and his throne room that we have really in the Old Testament. Moses was a friend of God, conversed with God, and yet we don't get a picture of God in those interactions. And in fact, uh, Moses is not able to see the full glory of God. He's sort of hidden by God's hand in an anthropomorphic sense. God's glory passes by and he can see the back part of the glory, but not the full glory of God. Elijah sees a lot of natural uh, occurrences uh, of lightning and thunder and fire and earthquakes and it's reminiscent of God's power, but doesn't see the glory of God. He hears a voice speak, a still small voice. Of course, Adam and Eve walk with God, but we don't, we're not really brought into the throne room of God. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. And yet there, there's not really a description of God himself on his throne. It's more about the seraphim and the awe that Isaiah feels to be in God's presence. But here we have this clear picture, as clear as we can have, of what it is to be in the throne room of God and to see the one who is on the throne. And I think it's important why this happens and where it happens. Daniel is rattled. Now, again, understand who this vision has come to. When Daniel's about 15 or 16, he's ripped out of the royal palace and he is brought from Judea, from Jerusalem, to Babylon. So this is an individual that has a little life. He's got a little wear on the treads of his tires, we might say. He's been through some things, certainly as a young man. His name is changed. His diet is is attempted to be changed. His religion is attempted to be changed. It's a wholesale change for a very young man to to now be forced to grow up in a pagan culture and to, uh, to attempt to be assimilated into that pagan culture. He's also seen dreams, or at least he's interpreted dreams for these pagan um, de- uh, um, monarchs. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, the Nabonidus's dream, he's seen the writing on the wall. This is someone that has seen things before. And yet when he sees this vision, when this vision is given directly to him, he's rattled by this. Remember uh, what it says, go with me if you would to the end of the, the chapter. Uh, In verse 28, here's the end of the matter. So this is even after he's received the interpretation. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious 
and the visions of my head alarmed me. There's something about this, and again, this isn't just somebody who doesn't have experience. This isn't somebody that hasn't seen or heard tell certainly of visions and interpretations. He's well-versed in this. He's watched monarchs come and monarchs go, and yet there's something about this that really rattles him. And so it's at that point precisely that God comes in and reveals to Daniel a vision of himself. And I think that is helpful for us to understand that above all earthly dominions, all earthly powers and authorities, all the things that can happen to us in our lives, there is one who is above all of that, and he has dominion over all things. Before he spoke everything into existence, there was nothing except him, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communing from eternity past. Nothing existed until he spoke it into existence. It is all his, it is all from him, and he holds it all together, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And so, we ought not to get rattled, or if we do, by world events or events in our own personal lives, it ought not to rattle us permanently. God comes into Daniel and says, Daniel, remember how bestial and malevolent and evil and grotesque the nations of the world are. There is one who is in charge of it all. He's above it all. They do not have the final say. Death does not have the final say because the one who is over all things has entered into humanity, become human, and conquered even death, our greatest enemy and fear. Sin cannot keep us from the one who uh, called us into existence and has redeemed us and given us life twice, first by making us and then by remaking us through Christ if we're his this morning. And so, regardless of what news may come and has come, it is at this point in the vision that God reveals himself to show Daniel, don't be rattled by this. I'm, I'm opening a window for you to see the future, but understand who's already there. I am. <laughs> and so get a sense, a picture of me. And so verses 9 and 10, we have this idea of God's dominion over all. It's impressive. It's magnificent, This these short two verses. There's so much packed in here. And, and Daniel can't even really describe it fully. It's like if you go on a trip and you have experiences and see things you've never seen before, you can bring back pictures and video, but you, it, you can't replicate being there, seeing it, and that's where Daniel is. And so he's trying to describe it. His hair was like pure wool, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. As far as we know, 10,000 was the largest number in the ancient world. And so if you wanted to get the largest number thought possible, you would take 10,000 and you would multiply it by 10,000. It means innumerable. He, he's having a hard time describing the size of the crowd around the throne. This is a magnificent vision. And so notice in the first place then that God is always in control. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. What often happens to us when we receive bad news, when we're anxious, when we're afraid, when we're nervous, we pace, we walk around, we've got to be doing something. We don't typically recline in our lazy boy and go, ah, it's great, the world is amazing, let me watch more news, <laughs> all right? 
But here, the posture of the Ancient of Days is that he took his seat. He is not panicked. He is not flustered. He is sitting down. But notice where he's sitting. Thrones were placed. We're not sure what these thrones are. We know that in Revelation there's 24 of them. The elders sit on those. Jesus tells the disciples that they will sit on thrones. Perhaps this is all those that follow God have their own thrones. Whatever these thrones are, the Ancient of Days sits on his throne. It is a place of command. And this throne is higher than any other throne anywhere in the universe, and certainly anywhere on finite, puny earth. Individuals that have ornate thrones, sort of trying to tangibly express power and might, they are nothing compared to the throne of the ancient of days. He sits in judgment. That's also where judgment comes from, this throne. And he alone is able to dispense that and dispense it well. All of these things just fairly scream to us from this passage. God is in control. And notice how he's described the ancient of days, the eternal one, the one who has wisdom and experience, the one who has been around since before anything else was. This one is in control of all things. Notice in the second place that he is purity. His clothing was white as snow. There is a purity here. Now I, w- I was tempted to say God is pure and that is also true, but it's better stated from here that God is purity because purity is not a concept outside of God. God defines what purity is for us. He is holy righteous. There is no alternative motives in God. He does not say one thing and think another. He is completely righteous, completely holy. It's the only attribute of his that is repeated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He is pure. And if he was not, this amount of power would be rightly terrifying. And to those who reject him, it is terrifying. But to those who know him as father, it ought to be comforting. There is no decision God ever makes that is not the best one that could be made. He knows all things. He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnibenevolent. He is good. His heart is always for what is pure and right and just and fair and true. And his clothing displays that. It's white as snow. The same description given for us when our sins are taken care of by the shed blood of Christ. That we're washed as white as snow. And in Revelation, which we're going to get to, we're going to see that the garments of the saints are like white linen. And and we go back to Leviticus where we were a few years ago here at Grace. And that was the clothing of the high priest. Especially on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that was the only thing he was to wear. He was to lay aside his regular priestly robes and robe himself in white linen. Purity. Purity of thought, purity of motivation, purity of heart, purity of action, purity of speech. This is God. He is also wisdom. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Think less ancient and fragile and senile and think more Gandalf the White from Tolkien, if that makes any sense from Lord of the Rings. This is not ancient of days in that he's decrepit. This is ancient of days in that he is eternal and has been around since before anything else was. 
He has wisdom. He is wisdom. He has all the information that could be. He is pure wisdom. There is nothing outside of his knowledge, and it is not just knowledge, but it is knowledge rightly applied. It is mixed with his purity and his righteousness. He always knows what is best. He is wise. What a comfort that is and ought to be to us. We typically go to people that have more experience than we do if we have a question, or at least that's the wise course of action. Who better to go to than the one who has been around since before anything else existed? He has seen all things, and he's already in the future. God is wise. Notice he is also righteous, or you could even put in your notes, he is righteousness. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. There is a purifying nature of fire that is referenced here. He is righteousness personified. There is nothing of evil in God. He is purely holy. Again, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing inside of God's heart in the deep recesses that is malevolent or capricious or evil or wrong. He is righteousness. And that is evidenced here by these fiery flames. To be in God's presence is to be in the presence of pure righteousness. It's one of the reasons why individuals who even catch a glimpse of God's glory or even interact with one of his messengers, an angel, react the way they do. In awe, instantly fall on their face. Fall on their face. What does Isaiah do in Isaiah 6? He falls on his face. Woe, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I can't be here. I am not pure. I am not righteous. And I would be subsumed by this righteousness. It would kill me. This is our God. He is pure righteousness. Notice he's also omnipotent. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This little horn that we uh, were introduced to last Sunday is speaking great things. And it's not just great things that he speaks. Notice in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7. He shall speak words against the Most High. What are these words that he's speaking? These are blasphemous words. These are words of pure pride and arrogance. These are words reminiscent of Satan's words in Isaiah 14. I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like the Most High. This is an individual who presumes to take the place of God when he is infinitely less than who God is. And so God judges all. He is omnipotent. No matter how scary a dictator or a tyrant or an evil leader appears, no matter how much power they appear to have, and no matter how many human lives they take, they are under God's authority. He alone is omnipotent, and every human being is impotent. There is not ultimate power in humanity that only resides and rests in God himself. And Daniel needs this. We need this because he has just seen a vision that seems to be overpowering. How do we as humanity fight against this when evil rules the day, when this just ferocious, malevolent force is just stamping everything in front of it. It's destroying everything in its path. 
How can we possibly stand against this? We can't, but God can and will. And if we are his, then we will be with him forever. He rules and reigns over all. And so everyone will bow to him. We know in Philippians that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. And so human pride and human arrogance does not rule the day. Human ideas and human evil do not rule the day. Human power and human might do not rule the day. God rules over all things. Notice he is also in the sixth place, the only one worthy of worship. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. People worship so many different things, but there is only one who is worthy of worship, and that is God and God alone. Only he is pure and righteous and good and gentle and holy and just and fair and true. Only he is worthy of our worship. And there are so many people worshiping him, Daniel can't count them. He uses the largest number he's aware of and multiplies it by that same largest number to give us the sense that this is an innumerable company of people worshiping God. And the scene is reminiscent of Revelation 4 and 5 and 7. People from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, people from every ethnos are before the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the scene. He is the only one worthy of worship. These petty tyrants These puny dictators attempt to force people to bow the knee to them because ultimately they are insecure and all of their pride and all of their arrogance does not release them from the reality that they are not as great as they believe themselves to be. But God is the greatest and he alone is worthy of worship and around his throne is an innumerable company of humans who are submitting to him and worshiping him. That is why we do what we do week in and week out. That is why we do missions. That is why we tell people about Jesus. That is why we live as believers. Is because we worship God only by his grace and we're calling other people to do the same. Life doesn't make sense if you don't worship God. Life doesn't work if you don't worship God. Life is hard apart from the worship of God. And not because life is any easier for those who worship God. Life oftentimes is harder because we worship God but even in those hardships is easier because we worship God. (laughs) He is the one that we can trust. He is the one that we can rely on. He is the one that is working all things after the, the, the plan that he has and it is going according to his will and we can rest in that and we can trust in that and that is the reminder that Daniel needs and that's the reminder that we need. God has dominion over all, not the forces of evil that are arrayed against us and not even the forces of evil in our own hearts are stronger than God and his grace. And then notice in the last place, in the seventh point here, and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. God is also judge. These books could be the books referenced in the book of Revelation, the book of life, and the book of the deeds of every human being who has ever lived. Uh, This could be the books, these could be other books, but that is perhaps... Uh, what is best seen here. And so these books of judgment are open. Nothing passes without God's notice and God's making a record of it. All is recorded and God knows all things. He alone is right 
to judge. And as we saw in the book of Hebrews when we were in there, it is appointed unto each human to die, and after this comes judgment. There's an accountability, there's a day of reckoning, which if you do not submit to God and are not a believer in him through Christ by his Holy Spirit is a scary, terrifying proposition because your good works will not outweigh your bad. Your only hope is Christ and his full and free sacrifice for you. That is the only hope that we have. And yet if you do know God and are following him and worshiping him and submitting to him, what comfort this brings. No act of injustice goes unpunished, ultimately. No act of unfairness goes without accountability. Nothing that has ever happened in all of history goes without being recognized, recorded, and dealt with by the one who is over all things. That is a comforting fact indeed. We may not get justice this side of glory, but there will be justice. God alone is judge. It's very, very important for us to get this full sense of who the Ancient of Days is because it relates to verses 13 and 14, and then it relates to the book of Revelation, which we're getting into. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. But this is a brief look and a brief teasing out of some of the elements of this vision of God, the Father, that Daniel receives, this one who is the ancient of days. And in our time, how important it is for us to recognize that. With all of the uncertainty, with all of the instability, with all the polarized politics and all the things that are a reality of our day-to-day lives, the big things and the small things, may we recognize that God is over all things. He has dominion over all. He is working all things according to his will and all things are working out according to his plan. And we can rest in that. Notice verses 11 and 12, man's severely limited dominion. In verse 11 Man's evil tyranny is crushed. The timing on this is fascinating. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Interesting that Daniel, even after seeing a clear vision of God, is still distracted by the arrogance of the words of this puny dictator, this Satan-inspired human ruler, the, the, the blasphemy that is coming out of his mouth, the, the, the ferocity of it, and, and just the, <laughs> the arrogance that is coming out. Daniel's distracted by this, and what happens? And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. God does not have rivals. God God does not allow anyone who desires to take his position to go unchecked. But God's not petty. He's not insecure. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands because people are trying to replace him. God knows who he is. God knows he has spoken all things into existence and all things hold together by the words of his power. God is not insecure. But there comes a time when God's mercy ends and his judgment comes. And in the middle of the arrogant blasphemy of this individual, he's struck down and destroyed. And not just destroyed in this life, but given over to be burned with fire. Clearly, again, John picks this up in Revelation, 
that the, the beast and the false prophet and Satan are cast into the lake of fire. It's a place that was specifically designed after the fall or after his fall for him to be his final destination. There is an end coming to human arrogance and human pride. There is an end coming to our great enemy, the evil one. His end is already there. His end is, is already prescribed. God has all things under, under his control. At the height, it would seem, of this arrogant blasphemer, God says enough. And when God says enough, there is nothing that can stop his good and righteous judging hand. In the midst of this speech, he is killed. Amazing. And then also notice that man's evil tyranny is tamed. It's not just crushed, but it's tamed also in verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. God's mercy and grace are unfathomable. These previous beasts have no business being spared. God is under no obligation to show them grace and mercy. At times, they were just as arrogant as this fourth beast. In moments and seasons, they were perhaps just as evil and malevolent and destructive as this fourth beast. And yet, for whatever reason, God shows them grace and mercy. Again, we get a little glimpse as to what has already happened in Daniel and what will yet happen throughout human history. Why would Nebuchadnezzar receive God's grace and mercy? Why would God give him a vision? Knowing that he was going to take that vision and make it all about himself. Why would he come? And, and, and why would Christ, we believe, in a pre-incarnate appearance, join up with three Hebrew, Hebrew boys in a fiery furnace to show Nebuchadnezzar the strength and might of Almighty God? Why would he give Nabonidus, why would he give him a vision of his future? Why would he allow him to continue to be as evil as he was for another full 12 months before he finally brings judgment on him? And why would he allow him to come out of that judgment and have his kingdom restored? Read the end of Daniel chapter 4. Why would he come to a tyrant like Belshazzar? And before destruction comes, that night, but before it comes, why would he give him yet another chance to repent and believe? Why does he give him the handwriting on the wall from which we get that phrase even here in 2024? And why would he show him, show Darius, his mercy and grace by showing his power in saving Daniel from the lion's den. Why do any of these tyrants who deserve none of God's mercy and grace, why do they receive it? Because that's also who God is. To see God as judge is a one-dimensional view of God who is multifaceted and infinite. And another part of who he is, is grace and mercy. Which leads to the question about us. Why do we receive God's mercy and grace? We are no better than any of these tyrants. Our hearts are just as evil, and were we given that much power and authority and money and influence, we would use it wrongly. We would be in the same boat. Our only hope is God's mercy and grace, the grace and mercy that caused his son to come and become one of us and to go to the cross and shed his precious blood for us. That's God's grace and mercy, and we are undeserving of it. And even here at this moment in the vision, we still see God's grace and mercy to these human rulers and the kingdoms they rule over. God is so gracious and mercy, merciful. But there is a taming of these uh, human authorities and powers in these nations. 
The same with Greece and Rome and any other nation that has come after it. In the midst of their horrific bent away from God, God shows grace and mercy. But the height of human arrogance, and whether this is speaking of Rome or the time yet to come, it is destroyed. There is time up. I've used this illustration before, but again, if we were to go up above just the city of Charlottetown tonight, perhaps in some sort of uh, imaginative hot air balloon, and we could see every act of sin and evil, every act of depravity that was committed just this evening, just in Charlottetown, I don't think that we could keep our eyes on it for much more than a millisecond before we want to be turned away. The domestic violence and abuse, the hatred and the evil and the greed and the lust and the jealousy and the pride and the arrogance. And yet, God sees all human evil and all human pain and suffering globally every second of every day and he stays his hand of judgment. He is gracious and merciful because that is also who he is. But he is not gracious and merciful for us to presume upon that but so that we would come to him, submit to him, worship him, repent, and be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Those who resist that, it says that God is storing up his judgment. And I don't think any of us would wish that on our worst enemy. Read Revelation 14, we're going to get to Revelation. When God treads out the fierceness of the winepress of his wrath, it is ferocious and scary indeed. So there's accountability, and Daniel needs to know that, and we need to know that. We can get ourselves very flustered with politics, especially present-day politics in our own nation. I posted an article this week written by my friend Jonathan Griffiths. Canada is the leading nation in the world in euthanasia. It, 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 is, it is troubling, deeply, deeply troubling with all of the work that we have done and all the prayers that we have prayed. Our country seems to still be hell-bent on its own destruction. And yet, our Savior is not in politics. Our Savior is not in legislation, more or less, depending on your perspective. Our Savior is not in uh, the medical profession, even though we are very appreciative of those that serve in that way. We cannot save ourselves. Our Savior is outside of us. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. And Daniel needs this and we need this. In the midst of all this instability, God comes and shows him a picture of himself. And so, in the last place then this morning, we see God's dominion over us. God's dominion over us. If we have repented of our sin and are trusting in him and him alone for our salvation, there are at least four things that can be true of us. In the first place, our hearts can be settled. Daniel holds these things in his heart, it says in the final verse of chapter 7. Is there, a t is there a temptation for Daniel to be distraught? Yes, absolutely. He's seen a vision of the future, and it is frightening indeed. Can you imagine if you were living in Daniel's day, about 550 B.C., and you saw ahead of time perhaps something akin to the Holocaust, to 9-11, to Pol Pot and Stalin and, and, and all of the atrocities that just happened in the last number of centuries, let alone all the ones that occurred before that? You could see the ferocity of Rome and the speed of the conquest of Alexander the Great and all of the innocent people that have suffered as a result of that. If you could see in a glimpse human suffering 
and evil seemingly unchecked, I think you'd be unsettled as well. So why does God come at this point? He says, he says to Daniel, Daniel, do not let your heart be troubled, as Jesus would say to his disciples in John 14. Believe in God, believe also in me. Everything is happening according to my will and according to my plan. And so we can, we can obsess, we can go on YouTube to our favorite news pundits, we can follow the, the latest uh, things on the major news outlets, we can read newspapers, if anybody does that anymore, or online things, we can get so obsessed with what's happening in politics and geopolitics and wars and rumors of wars and all these things, and it is not wrong to be aware of what's going on, but it ought not to unsettle our hearts because abo above it all, over it all, through it all, in it all is God and it does not rattle him, and it ought not to rattle us. Secondly, our fears can also be calmed. We have a lot of fears, personally and individually and in our families, but also bigger than that. There, there is climate change and the alarmism that is being promoted. There is there are wars and different things happening. There are protests and ideologies and all these kind of things that are buzzing around. And we can certainly be afraid. And yet, why does the Ancient of Days reveal himself to Daniel at this point? Because he has granted him mercy and grace to reveal to him a piece of the future. And Daniel is unique in that and uniquely blessed by God. But that vision does not come without a vision of the one who holds the future in his hands. It's terrifying indeed to know what is coming, especially when that is as malevolent and evil and capricious as it is. And yet, God does not give that vision without giving a vision of himself. Daniel, don't forget the one who is over all, in all, through all, and to which everything has its end. Do not forget me, the ancient of days, the one that you serve, the one that you pray to three times a day, the one that you trust, the one who is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Do not forget me. Calm your fears in me. In the third place, then our gratitude can be abundant. When we are afraid and when we are unsettled, we typically, if not exclusively, complain. Everything then is woe is me and it's doom and gloom. But even in the midst of pain and suffering and evil and its effects, both our evil and the evil around us, we can have gratitude because God is doing something about evil, has done something about evil through Jesus Christ, is doing something about evil, and will finally answer for all of the evil that has ever taken place. Where individuals will either be, have already been judged on the cross, or will be judged for eternity in the lake of fire, in hell. God has a plan. And therefore, we can be grateful, or ought to be grateful. Paul and Silas singing in jail, individuals praising God in the midst of just awful circumstances. How is that possible? It's only possible by a vision of the ancient of days. He is glorious and pure and righteous and wise and all of these things and so much more. When our vision of him is big, then our vision of our own issues and struggles and problems and fears dim and shrink. And therefore, then, in the last place, our worship can be effusive, abundant, overwhelming. How amazing it is to be able to freely sing and read and, and, and cry out and pray and all of these things to a God who knows and hears and who is worthy of our worship. It's difficult 
if we focus on the news cycle, if we focus on all of these things to, to look up, because we're looking out or we're looking down or we're, worse of all, we're looking in. But when we look up, we can praise. And that is what this is supposed to invoke in Daniel. It's supposed to bring him into praise and worship. He has done that throughout this book in Daniel 2. He praised God for giving him the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. He prays three times a day, looking towards Jerusalem, reminiscent of Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple in, in, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings. And so he is a man of prayer and he's a man of worship. And that is also true here. Even given this vision, God is coming to Daniel to say, um, trust in me, worship me, submit to me, because there alone will you find peace and joy and contentment and goodness and gentleness and grace and truth and love and this and so much more. And so I hope our eyes this morning then can be picked up out of our present circumstances and placed firmly where they always need to be on God and his magnificent and gracious sovereignty. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we've had to be in your word this morning and we're so thankful for Daniel chapter 7 at this pivot point in the book where we turn from narrative to prophecy and as well as apocalyptic literature. These visions of the end full of strange and frightening and evocative imagery. And Father, I just pray that we would not get hung up on trying to figure out the minutia of the details, but instead that our eyes through these realities be drawn up to you, that we would see you in all of your magnificent glory, that we would, as our tagline has been this year, to stand firm in your sovereignty. You are good and you are gracious and you are kind and you rule over all. And nothing geopolitical or geographical or interpersonal or otherwise, should be able to move us off of our foundation resting on you. God, give us your grace and your mercy. There are times when we doubt. There are times when we are shaken. There are times when we are afraid. Help us, Father, to run to you, to rest in you. You have taken care of sin and death through your son's cross work, his death, burial, and resurrection. You have sent to those who repent and believe your Holy Spirit to indwell us. And your Holy Spirit is also among us, working through us to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there is so much when we see you that we see rightly. When we see what's going on around us and we focus on our struggles and our problems and our issues Father, we can get off track, but we focus on you, Father, and your glory. We can be grateful and we can worship. Our hearts can be settled and our fears can be calmed. So, Father, help us to share you with others because as they go through the uncertain realities of life, what they need is the one who is certainty himself, and that is you. 
Father, help us to be uh, witnesses of you so that you being our anchor and our foundation and our guide can also be the same for those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.